I'm writing this book with the Choose FI guys who are just on this trajectory upward. And even as I quit my job a couple of months, or I guess a little over a year ago now, I couldn't have predicted I'd be doing either of those projects. But as you just keep growing and learning and pursuing, trying to better yourself, you really never know where things are going to take you. So... Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. All right, welcome to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing solo, so what's up, Justin? Not too much, Cody. I did have another cool experience through the through the base, where this one was actually completely free, where they bust us out to uh, like Newport, Rhode Island, and it's this thing called Rail Explorers. Apparently, there's like three locations in the country where you put these little looks like racing seats on the railroad tracks and you kind of bicycle pedal yourself down the railroad tracks and check out the coastline. So that was a pretty cool experience. How about yourself, Cody? Yeah. So I just recently celebrated my mom's birthday. Not going to state her age here on the podcast, but happy birthday. Also had a volleyball and spike ball tournament this past weekend. So good weekend all around. But you know what else is pretty good, Justin? The episode we had today. And we had the author of the new Choose Five book that's coming out, Chris Mamula, and he just absolutely crushes it. And his story is so inspiring. He kind of just went being a regular guy who is pretty fugal to discovering Phi, and then it's just a jetpack journey from there. But I don't want to steal all his thunder. So take it away, Chris. So we cared really from the beginning. We were pretty money conscious. And I think that's just because my wife and I both grew up where you kind of had to be frugal by necessity, just because neither of us came from families that had very big incomes. And so um, my family was pretty money conscious. Like I remember talking about money a lot as a, as a kid. My dad was an entrepreneur. Like I remember we talked about like when they paid off their house, that was a big deal in our house. And it's something we talked about. I know they always talked about not financing cars and debt was just like a big no-no in our house. So even though they didn't have a big income, they were able to help me substantially. And then I was also able to get scholarships. And so I was coming out of both undergrad and a master's degree with no debt. But my wife, she had to put herself through school. And she came out about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in debt between school loans and a and a small car loan, and that just freaked me out. Like going into a marriage with any debt at all, so I kind of really wanted to be debt free by the time we were married. So we kind of came up with this plan that she was working a year ahead of me, and she would just support us completely, and she was paying on her debt, and then anything I made, I was working while I was in grad school. I was trying to get her debt paid off for her. And so like with my first real paycheck, I think first or second one in that first month, we got debt free and we were debt free a couple months before we got married. And then we just kind of continued on from there. And just to kind of help fill out the backstory, what were those degrees actually in? I have a bachelor's in movement science and a master's in physical therapy. And my wife just graduated with a bachelor's in math. And then I went on to get a, a transitional doctorate in physical therapy. And she went on to get two more degrees, an MBA and a master's in operations research down the road. But originally she had the bachelor's and I had a bachelor's in the master's. So when we're talking about the 20K in debt and you're making the plan to get out, this is just for your bachelor's degrees. We're not talking about the master's or the doctorate. This was for her bachelor's. It was really the debt was all from her. It was all her bachelor's degree. And uh, she worked full time while going to school, but just, you know, supporting her living costs and tuition. That's about what she came up with. And I, my parents helped me and I also worked through my undergrad. So I think I graduated my undergrad with a slightly positive net worth. And then my master's, I got a, a, almost a full scholarship. My first year was fully paid for. And then my second year, it was a combination of working and a small scholarship. And so I got out completely debt-free with a master's also in physical therapy. 
So I'm not too well versed in either of those subject matters, and I don't know what the pay is like. But when you first get out, it sounds like they're pretty legit, like movement science and physical therapy. And your wife was a mathematician. So right when you get out of school, I mean, you just have these massive salaries. And I know you grew up with frugality, but did it kind of overwhelm you and you started spending like crazy? Or what did those first few years look like after you started making real money? So when I graduated, so a physical therapist now, I think average starting salary is like in the mid 60s. So not huge money. But when I graduated, there was a law that went into effect. And it was kind of one of those weird things that really made me realize like how quickly stuff can turn on a dime. But just because of uh, I was the Balanced Budget Act, it was like in the late 90s. And it still carried over to when I graduated in 2000. So PTs were having a hard time getting a job in general. And then in the Pittsburgh area, like a lot of schools will have two or three PT schools. And Pittsburgh has three like in a two mile radius. And so it was just a glut. And so I started like in the mid thirties only. And she started with a bachelor's degree. She just had this entry level position. She worked for an actuarial company, but she was in the mid thirties. So no, definitely not huge salaries and living in a, you know, mid-sized city. So, but then we we both did me through moving away from the city and her just through advancing and getting those other degrees. Um, we both grew our salaries relatively quickly. So within five, six years, uh, we were making two to three times. We, we both topped out in like the high eighties, low nineties. And I think you said you you graduated like in the 2000s. Like, so did you hit the Great Recession? Did that impact you at all? Not really. We were, so I say we saved like 50% of our income from the beginning. So like what we did, once we paid off her debt, we just kept living off her salary. And as her salary grew, we did inflate our lifestyles a bit, but we basically were always saving mine. But a lot of that was really going in the first couple of years was going towards getting our house, our mortgage paid off really quickly. And so like when 2008 came around, I mean, we, we definitely were investing. We had a small net worth, but it really wasn't even something we were paying a lot of attention to. And so it didn't really phase us. And we just kind of invested right through it. And I guess we lost a bit of money. Well, we didn't lose anything because we didn't sell anything, but our value went down, but it really didn't phase us much. We just kind of kept investing right through it. So one thing I really like to highlight is kind of going back like the five on the five show. We definitely are a storytelling podcast. I mean, what kind of was the catalyst for that? Were you listening to Dave Ramsey? Did you read your money, your life? Like what makes you want to save 50% of your income instead of going out and spending money at the bar or getting the most fancy apartment in town? I just love to kind of hear the mindset you were in at that time. For me, it was just, it was really ingrained for my parents. Like just debt is like just, I, I, my parents could have been Dave Ramsey. I think, I think they just (laughs) hammered that home, but no, I never heard of Dave Ramsey back then. And we didn't really have a strategy like with the debt snowball or anything. We just thought it made sense. And then for my wife, she grew up, I would say probably her household income was pretty similar to what I grew up with, but her parents didn't have that sense with just being frugal and, and with being aware of their money. And, uh, they actually had some struggles like when she was in high school and it kind of scarred her, I think. And so for both of us, for a little bit different reasons, saving just, it just came naturally for us. And it was just something that we, we did really without thinking about it. It, To us, it was just kind of came, it was common sense, but no, we had no idea like fire was not a thing in 2001. And we had no idea that you could actually retire early on normal salaries or anything like that. It just kind of felt good. It felt safe and comfortable for us. And while you're sitting there and saving that 50% of your normal income, are you doing anything to bring in outside sources of income, any kind of side hustles? No, not really at that time, but we were both really, we didn't really need to because we were growing our careers pretty rapidly. So my wife got a, an MBA and she got this master's in operations research, both paid for by her employer. So she was seeing a substantial increase in her income through that. And for me, just getting away from the city. So I guess geo arbitrage before I knew that was a thing, I was doing it. And so the first thing we did was we moved outside of the city a little bit and I was driving like an hour outside of the city and that upped my salary by about 10 or $15,000. And then we moved back to our hometown where both the cost of living was lower 
And then also being more in a rural area for, for healthcare professionals, that's really a good way to up your income. So that probably bumped me another 10 or 15 right there just by making that move. So basically able to double my salary by making those two moves. And uh, like I said, through her, just through continuing her education and working up, we had pretty parallel paths and we were both really up in our income fairly quickly. So saving all this money is obviously awesome, but I'd like to hear if you were doing any stuff on the side. You said you didn't know about Dave Ramsey. You didn't mention that you knew about your money or your life. So were you saving just all this in a regular old checking account or putting it into Vanguard index funds or what the heck were you doing with all that money you're saving? I wish we were putting it into Vanguard index funds, <laughs> especially like with our time frame, as, as we said, like we would have been doing a lot better through the 2001 crash when we started and then through the 2008 crash when we started to accumulate. But what we were doing is basically we were saving my whole salary. So my first paycheck, we were just paying extra on our mortgage to try to, we just kind of intuitively thought if you eliminate your biggest expense, then you don't need as much and it gives you a lot more freedom. So my first paycheck was going to the mortgage at like three and 3.75%, I think, was our mortgage rate. So not not a great move at that time. And then our second, we were investing with a financial advisor who was putting us into like front-loaded mutual funds and funds with really high fees on the back end. And, and we just didn't know what questions to ask. And so we didn't really ask any and just basically did whatever he said. So it sounds like you kind of got in there and settled around this 50% savings rate number. I'm curious to like, as you're ramping up to that, or maybe as you went past that, did you did you hit a point to where you kind of hit deprivation or what was that relationship like with your wife? Like, how did you settle in on that 50% number? So I, I think it just felt comfortable. And like, so when we started, we were doing, you know, we were living like the college lifestyle. So we were comfortable with that. And then as we started upping our income, we started traveling more. So, and we, I would definitely not consider us frugal people. Like we've been to Australia, we've been to Africa, we've been to two Super Bowls, we've been to Europe. I mean, we were kind of doing what we wanted to do. And kind of like, again, like a lot of this was just intuitive for us, but the stuff you hear about all the time in the five community, housing, cars, food. I mean, we, we lived in a relatively low cost town and we just bought way less house than we could quote unquote afford. And again, like just from my parents driving at home, like, like I always drove a crappy car and my wife did as well. And we always bought them used and always bought them with cash and just those really simple things. It allowed us to live a really good lifestyle. So that's kind of how we got where we were. And like I said, it felt good to save, even though we really didn't know what we wanted. Like I knew I wanted to retire early. I didn't think we could retire this early or, and the whole fire thing wasn't a thing back then, but just intuitively, it just kind of made sense. And we thought we were working towards that, but just figuring out with a lot of mistakes as we went. So that's a perfect liaison into my next question. And so at some point you must've had a light bulb moment where you discovered that FI or fire was possible. I know you did mention just a couple of minutes ago that you were working with a financial advisor who was just absolutely gouging you on fees or whatever the heck he was doing to you. How long did that persist? And then when did you kind of discover this whole FI or fire or early retirement community? So we started investing with him pretty early on. I would guess probably around 2005-ish and maybe even a little bit earlier. And then as we paid off our house, which we paid off in like seven years, then like that, instead of one of my paychecks, both of my paychecks, we were just giving it to him. And we didn't really have a plan. Like our, like we were really involved in the outdoors. So we knew our lifestyle didn't cost a whole lot. And so we were going to kind of just, our game plan was just to move West and just kind of wing it. And like a lot of people, like they talk about like the ski bum mentality or the dirt bag mentality. And so that was kind of our, our game plan. Like we didn't have a plan. That was our plan. And then um, in, we didn't think we could have kids. We were married in 2001, shortly after I graduated. And then after a decade of this, my wife found out she was pregnant in 2012. And so it was like, wow, I guess we need a real plan. And so that's when we really got serious. As I started to get serious, that's when I somehow kind of stumbled into, I think my first was early retirement extreme. 
And then shortly after Mr. Money Mustache, and I went deep down the rabbit hole, went to all these fire blogs. But that's when I finally got serious. And that's what turned things around for us. So having a kid is obviously like a big life changing moment. So when that happens, did it did it motivate you to try to retire early even more? Or did it make you think, well, this is probably kind of pushing us back. And so maybe we need to be, you know, not worry about it so much. Let's just focus on, you know, all the expenses that are involved with having a child or, you know, what was that dynamic like? So I'm a bit embarrassed to say this because like we both, I think deep down wanted to have kids and we just kind of, we were generally pretty happy and we kind of, like we weren't like going through like in vitro or anything like that. But like deep down, I think we wanted kids but we just didn't think it was going to happen. And, and we kind of moved on from that. We just thought after a decade, it's not going to happen. And then, so when we found out, uh, as we found out, my wife actually had a job with an outdoor company in, in Salt Lake City, and we were preparing to move West. And this was like a couple month process where she was going through this interview. And so she found out, she got her job offer and the same week she found out she was pregnant. And we were kind of, we kind of, I think just mentally moved on. And so like I said, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but I think honestly, I went to a bit of depression because I kind of just felt like now we're going to be parents. We have to live this standard lifestyle that everybody else does. And we have to give up this adventuresome lifestyle that we had. And and that persisted for a couple months. That was probably the only time in my life I, we went out and I bought a new car. Didn't finance it, but I bought a new car. <laughs> and uh, just kind of like, I might as well just start buying nice stuff and whatever. And there, there's no point in doing this. And then shortly, the, like that lasted two or three months. And then I think maybe like seeing that first ultrasound around like the trimester mark and like seeing like this is a real kid. And like I want to spend time with her. And that really just turned things around for me. And that's that's when I got serious about it. But yeah, I did go through that little that little blip on the radar and, and uh, it didn't last long, but it definitely was a minor setback. And besides the blip, so let's go into past that first ultrasound. You know, the kids come in. What other like tangible steps did you take? Did you start going more hardcore towards fire and like start slashing expenses more? Were you actively trying to get promoted in your job? I'd love to hear if you could talk about some of the action steps that you took after you found out that you were having a kid. So the first thing, the big thing we did is I started reading these fire blogs. I just always thought that investing was just not something that a normal person can do. Like you have to farm that out to an advisor and like, how can you possibly know what funds to pick, what stocks to pick, like who knows how to do that. And then I stumbled into JL Collins stock series and it just like rocked my world. And I was like, man, this is so simple. And I probably read it two or three times. I had my wife read it, but then like, I'm like, well, who the heck is JL Collins? Like anybody could write anything on the internet. So like, I knew he talked a lot about Vanguard. So then I started reading like um, John Bogle's books. I read several of those and got into the, like the Bogle heads and white coat investor and all these different things. And I just went deep down the hole and, and I got really into investing and so pretty quickly we fired our advisor and we started just the process. I would say now that I understand investing is pretty simple if you're starting from scratch, but at this point we probably had about a $400,000 portfolio and a lot of it was in taxable funds. So you had to kind of figure out how to get out of that without the tax consequences. And we bought a variable annuity, which had a surrender charge, which we were sold. So we had a lot of figuring out to do. So yeah, I went pretty far down that path. And and that's really what got me started writing about this is I kind of wanted to become a consumer advocate and and start helping other people to not follow us down this path. And also just kind of to pay back or I guess maybe pay forward because all these bloggers just kind of just started writing stuff and they, and they genuinely changed my life. So that's what got me going that direction. And as you got serious and a lot more educated about stocks and investing did you kind of settle into a, you know, like a lazy three portfolio or did, did you ever get into more complicated avenues for investing? I do write. So I write at Can I Retire Yet as my blog, my home on the internet. And I, I spell out my whole portfolio there. I kind of settle on something a little bit between 
like the three fund portfolio and Paul Merriman has what's called the ultimate buy and hold portfolio. I'd say my, my portfolio falls somewhere in there. I think I have seven funds, but it's all index funds. It's relatively simple, a little more complex than like, you know, the just buy VTSAX or even the three fund portfolio, but not much. It's pretty simple, straightforward indexing strategy. So going back to timeline, so it's 2012, you find out you're having a daughter. When did you start your blog? And I know you started getting serious shortly after probably 2013 and onward. I think I started my original blog, which was called Eat the Financial Elephant in like two, I believe it was in 2014. So she was probably about a year or two old at that time, I think is when I started writing. And what the heck Uh, is that name? (laughs) So... So this is kind of a funny story, but so I started reading this blog and I start telling people about like what I'm doing and they're like, well, where do you even come up with this stuff? I was like, well, I read Mr. Money Mustache and the Mad Scientist. And you're like, what? You're like changing your life based on like these people that sound like cartoon villains or something. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'm going to start like just writing from the perspective of a normal person who, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I'm not super frugal. And then I'm like thinking, well, I don't want to put my name out there. So I have to come up with a, my own little moniker. And so I was, um, we had a patient in and she had her granddaughter there. So I was trying to keep her entertained. I was reading her jokes from a highlights magazine and it was like the riddle, like, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. And that's kind of, that's where I came up with the name for the blog. Cause like, I was kind of, I found finance overwhelming and I was kind of figuring it out as I went and writing about it. And so that's where that came from. And, and then I was the, the elephant eater. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was another person with a dumb name who was now, now writing about fire. So, you know, this sounds like a ton of positive steps and things you're kind of growing and learning. Was there anything about going towards financial independence that wasn't what you thought it was going to be? It was kind of negative. It was something that you learned after the fact that, no, nah, I don't I don't want to do it this way, the way that maybe all these other people are saying you should do something. Yeah, that's a great question. So we started and it, we went from like, okay, we can never retire early because we have this kid. And then we started reading this stuff. And then it's so simple. Like you just you track your expenses you get 25 times that you follow the 4% rule and it just sounded so easy. And so we were like just hardcore on this path. And then as we started to get close, like my wife and I, we never really argued about money. Cause like we talked about, we came from different reasons and different directions to get to this high savings rate, but we both really found a lot of comfort in that. And then when you get to this idea of going from your saving and you have all this cushion and, and I say, we say 50%, but some years it was probably 60, maybe 65. Some years it was maybe 40. Like if we did bigger trips or bought a car or something, but we really didn't care. We were just, we felt very comfortable. And now all of a sudden you're talking about like, you have this tight budget. And if you go over there, a risk, you can run out of money. And basically you're playing chicken with your, if you run out of money before you run out of life. And it just felt very restrictive and not comfortable. So, and it, we kind of felt like we started having actually fights about money and fights about what we were going to do. And so, yeah, we kind of had to really step back and kind of redefine like what retirement meant to us and what we wanted that to look like and in which direction we wanted to go. So yeah, we had to kind of work that out gradually over time. And did you have an exact retirement date planned out? Like, did you have a complicated spreadsheet or were you just kind of going with the flow, waiting until you hit that 4% rule, the magic 25X number? And I'm just kind of curious to hear what you thought in terms of timeline versus reality. Yeah, so we started with our goal was to hit that 25 times. And then as we kind of realized, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pull the trigger there. That's just, it felt too risky. Um, we kind of realized we really would just, we never pulled the trigger and, and moved west. So we decided when we found out my wife was pregnant just to stay at our hometown in Pennsylvania. So we decided we wanted to move west. So we kind of, it was more of a timing issue that we decided we wanted to leave and move uh, prior to her starting kindergarten. So we just kind of set a date that we were going to, whether what the markets did, what our savings did, whatever, we were just going to pull the trigger and and move around that to make it kind of easier on her. And then we'll kind of figure it out. 
And so I quit my job in December of 2017, and then we moved July of 2018 last summer. And so we're about a year now. We live in Utah now. So we picked up and moved across the country. And it was really more of a, a lifestyle move than a numbers move or a financial move. And I know you mentioned like you're very outdoorsy people. And obviously that makes a lot of sense for a place, a lot of places out West, like Utah, Colorado, you know, what have you. But what all kind of research did you go into when you're trying to decide, okay, no kidding, this is the city, the state that you wanted to move to? Yeah. So we're like, we love just being outdoors in general, but we're hardcore skiers. Like that's our thing. And so we really wanted to be very close to skiing, like 20 minutes or less was kind of our criteria. And so that eliminated almost every area because uh, it gets pretty expensive if you live in a, in a ski area. So we whittled it down to like Ogden, Salt Lake in Utah, Driggs, Idaho, which is right by Grand Tarhee Ski Resort. And it's on the backside of the Teton. So it's a really beautiful area. And near Winter Park in Colorado, those three were all relatively affordable. And it would get us really close because we wanted to get out like when our daughter's in school and we can do our grown up stuff and then we could also do stuff with her. So that was kind of our criterion. And then as we kind of looked at each of those areas and spent a little bit of time, Salt Lake was a little bit too big for us. And the other two were just a little bit too small. And we didn't want to pigeonhole our daughter. We wanted to give her a lot of options. So Ogden's a, it's a mid-sized city, super close to two major ski resorts. It has a lot of, I mean, we can hike and bike right out our back door. So it just kind of felt like the right fit. And that's how we ended up here. So it sounds like you kind of had the right environment. You knew where you were moving to. You knew where you're going to love it. But one thing that still holds people back is just retirement. It's such a scary word. It's something that it's just an unknown. It's like jumping into the abyss. But I know, and I know for me, when I quit my job, it was like all of a sudden when you retire, all these crazy opportunities just fall into your lap. And I know you have two in particular, and I'd love if you could kind of talk about like what happened when you were about to pull that trigger or during the process of getting ready to retire. Well, quote unquote retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So we start like, so I told you, like I, I was writing anonymously and the blog, I mean, I didn't really do a whole lot to publicize it. My blog never got very big, but I was starting to get some exposure. And then I also started writing some freelance stuff for the site Dough Roller. And so I was actually starting to put my name out there and it was just, it was kind of, it was really stressful. Like you're trying to promote your stuff on one hand and then keep yourself a secret on the other hand. And it, it was just like this silly thing. And so I just felt the need to get it out there. So I actually quit my job in, I believe it was like late February, but I wasn't going to actually leave my job. Like I told them in late February, but I wasn't going to leave until December 1st of that year. And so I had this long stretch of time. And the original game plan was kind of my wife and I would each like, because our expenses are so low, we have paid off house and, and paid off cars. And, you know, we're just pretty naturally frugal. We only really need to work about 10 or 15 hours each and that would cover all of our expenses. And then we really wouldn't even have to draw down at all. So that was our game plan. And then my wife, uh, she was recruited to this position with a, with a new company that let her work remotely and it provided our healthcare. So it was a pretty awesome opportunity for her. And then for me, I, I kind of knew I wanted to write a book. And I also wanted to just focus more on expanding my reach with the blog, but I didn't really know how to do that. So with the book idea, Brad and Jonathan started the Choose FI podcast. And it really was kind of the idea I wanted to do was to start interviewing all these people that influenced my life and kind of take their lessons and time together and make a book out of it. And since they started ahead of me, I just reached out to them and said, hey, you know, I had this idea. I'd like to turn it into a book. Instead of me starting my own podcast and competing with you, what do you say about doing that as a team? And, and they were on board. And, and so we did that. And then one of my mentors who really helped me was Derek Kirkpatrick, who writes the blog, Can I Retire Yet? Kind of same situation. I, I read one of his blog posts and I kind of sensed he was just burning out. He'd been doing it for five or six years. He was a one-man show. And so again, I just reached out to him. I said, would you have any interest in a partner? And he said, actually, I think I might. And so we just started a conversation. We did a little test run and 
it was working out well. So now I partner with him on that. So since those fell into my lap, I decided not to work part-time as a PT. And I basically essentially completely retired and I haven't done any PT work in the last almost two years now. I'm sure a lot of people who, whether listen to this podcast, just in this space, you know, they, they hear Choose FI and it, it is, it's a big brand now. But when you actually reached out to them, like, did that seem daunting or were they just starting out? What was that kind of interaction like? Uh, it was pretty early. It was probably, uh, so like I said, I probably quit my job in February. And so I would guess it was probably sometime around April. It wasn't a whole long time after that. And so they were starting to gain some steam, but nothing like what they are now. So probably be a lot harder to get through to them and they would probably be more selective about uh, <laughs> allowing me to do this. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely a, a bit of luck and timing in that, I think. But they had some momentum and I kind of sensed that I really liked what they were doing and the people they were talking to and the direction they were going. So I felt comfortable with partnering and they felt comfortable with me. And so it's worked out really well. So could you talk a little bit about the book process, what you plan to get out of the book? Did you get what you wanted to get out of the book and just everything about writing? Because I'm sure that was a crazy, crazy process after quote unquote retiring. You're probably spending hours and hours working and revising chapters and doing all the stuff that goes into writing a book. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I had no idea what writing a book entailed. And uh, so my original motivation for doing this. I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan and he wrote a book called Tools of Titans and for people that aren't familiar. So he interviews people who are ultra successful from various walks of life. And then he takes these key lessons and he turned it into this book where basically each chapter was just an interview. And so that was kind of my idea for the book. And that's what we actually agreed to. And, and so I figured it wouldn't be that hard. I could probably do one interview, maybe even two interviews a day and kind of zip through this. And we knew we were moving last July. So my, my goal was to have it done in six months and, and have it out like a year ago. So I wrote the intro and I sent it over to those guys and we decided to have a Skype call. And Jonathan hit me with, you know, I really think we should kind of like tie this together and tell more of a story. And so I was like, huh. And like, as we talked about it and I thought about it, it did sound like it would be a lot better book. But then in the back of my mind, I was thinking, man, this is a lot more work. And so, um, so I, yeah, I sat down for basically about two, two and a half hours every morning when I got up and just wrote. And that was kind of my routine. And, and beyond that, I didn't really get much done. So no, it's definitely not like you're working tons of hours a day, but I was, I tried to be very focused. I do it first thing in the morning for like the first two to two and a half hours. And I had the first manuscript of the book basically done in time. Like my goal was before I moved. But then we kind of found a couple of the chapters were a little bit lacking, particularly the college, like how to hack or skip college. That was a total rewrite. And we went back and we had to pull some newer interviews because they didn't have a whole lot in that first year that I was pulling from. So the book was still done probably then with that rewrite by September, but then you bring an editor on and, and that process was very involved. Like we cut, we probably cut two and a half. We didn't really add anything, but probably cut two and a half or three chapters out and we rearranged a lot of stuff. And then um, we kind of were looking to because their brand was growing so much, we wanted to incorporate them more into the book. So we brought an artist in and we like there's little characters of them in the book. And and so it's been a process and I've learned a lot, but and it's been fun, but it's way more than I thought I was signing on for when we when we decided to do this. That uh college chapter is just absolutely phenomenal. There's this rock star in there, I think. His name's like Cody or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were pulling from uh from all sorts of places. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I know one thing that like me and Cody have realized through having the podcast is while obviously the goal is to kind of for the listeners and to educate people, it's also really awesome to be in the position to where you get to interview people and ask the questions you want to ask, get to learn, legitimately learn things ourselves. So as you're going through this process with this book and you're seeing all these interviews and you're interviewing people, 
was there like a story or a person or something that kind of jumps out to you where you're like, you know, I was doing this for other people, but man, I really took something away from this myself. Yeah, there's a couple. A story that just really kind of hit me personally was when the mad scientist, when Brandon was on their show and he talked about how he kind of drove himself to depression, trying to like strive for early retirement. And then he got there and he realized that, you know, his life didn't really change that much. And he never did end up quitting his job until he was eventually a couple of years later forced to, because in the process of working towards financial independence, he created these conditions that were so good. And that's really kind of my story too. Like we talked about how I kind of got down because I felt like retirement was everything. And if we couldn't retire, even though we had this child coming, I got depressed about that. And then even once I got on the path, it was like, well, we're going to save for retirement, but then it got scary. And then that got, got me down. And then really like right now, I mean, by objective measures, I mean, I'm writing a book, I work on the blog, I don't make much money from it, but I, I work on it a fair amount. My wife still works you know, 28 hours a week. So she's still working a fair amount, but we're able to design this life we want and you don't really have to retire. So I think that's a really big message that I don't even know that it clicked to me until I listened to that interview a second time or a third time. And I was breaking it down and trying to pull out these principles that hit home pretty hard for me. And then another topic that I think is really interesting that we talk a lot about within the community is like using travel credit rewards to get free travel. And it's more just like this way of having fun and doing things. And, and that's fine and good. And, and we talk about that a little bit in the book. But really, like as you kind of get into it, it's really just flipping the whole equation. And like so many people, they just don't like even high high earners, doctors would say, you know, if you had to save 30 or 40 or 50 percent, it would be such a sacrifice. And what I found is in this community, we really kind of flip that on its head and we kind of look at how do we make this a game? How do we make this fun? And I think that's really the bigger story than just, you know, how much money can you save by, you know, using these reward points. And then as we travel, you, you get all these unique experiences and that came through in a couple of different stories. And I thought that was really powerful too. And that wasn't where I intended to take the chapter, but as I started putting these stories together and really linking these concepts up, that really hit home for me too. So yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that's not really intuitive. And I think the sum is greater than you know the individual parts in, in the individual interview. So I think even if you're a fan of the podcast or if you know a lot of these producers because you're involved in the community, I think the way we tied it together, you're going to get something out of the book. And, and that was my goal. And, and hopefully we hit the mark. Absolutely. And I have read the book and I think it's awesome. Do you have kind of one sentence or just some kind of theme that you were trying to tie all together with all those individual chapters? Yeah, I think if, if I could put it into one sentence, I would say learn the rules. And, and if I can break that up into two sentences. All right, you can um, cheat. <laughs> if I can break it up into two sentences. I mean, I think the first part of that, you have to kind of unlearn the rules because so many people know that, you know, you have to go to college, you retire at 65 your mortgage should be X percentage of your income. You save 10%. And these things are just so just kind of ground into you. And people just accept them because you hear them so much. And none of those are rules. So you have to unlearn the rules, but then you do have to learn the rules. Like my story we talked about, like if you're going to use financial products, whether they be credit cards or mutual funds or whatever, take the time and understand those. The basic rules of math, like look at your savings rate and is that going to get you where you want to go or do you need to choose a different path? Math is simple. You can't violate those rules. Tax laws, whether you find them tremendously boring or you like to dig in and optimize stuff, the tax laws apply to you. So you need to learn those, like those are rules. So I would say learn the rules, but break it down into those two, two steps of unlearning the unwritten rules and learn the rules that actually matter. And, and that's what we tried to get through in the book also. So jumping back just a little bit, because a couple of things you said, just, I don't know, I thought they resonated with me was one, 
you know, having fun with saving money. I think that's a that's a big key for everyone. If you can get your head wrapped around that and you can get behind that to like quit looking at it as deprivation, but look at it as a challenge. And, you know, anyways, that's just like, I think that's great advice. The other thing is that kind of, you know, you realizing how much you are still actually working and how much your wife is still working and, and some of those topics of like depression and what do you do with yourself when you are retired. So when you're not writing a book, let's say the book is gone. There is no more book. Your wife has decided, you know what, 28 hours, I don't want to do it anymore. What do you envision your life being like when those hours go from, you know, even though they may only be 25 hours a week for each of you now, when those go to zero? I don't know that they'll ever go to zero. I, I don't have a particular next project. I have been putting the blog stuff kind of on the back burner. So I, I write, I only write two articles a month. And so I'm not spending a lot of time on the blog, but I would like to, like we talked about, uh, my partner and I, Darrow, and I talked about doing a site redesign and just making it a better user experience and trying to get out and market ourselves and grow our audience a little bit. So I have some projects I want to work on there. I started last winter, I, I just on a volunteer basis, working with an adaptive ski program where I kind of can combine my passion for the outdoors with my physical therapy skills. And they actually enjoyed having somebody with my skill set. And so they talked to me about maybe doing the training to become a, uh, an instructor. I don't know if it, that would maybe ruin it for me because I loved it so <laughs> much because I was a pure volunteer and I was just doing it for nothing. So I'm kicking that around. And I just kind of like Cody said, like opportunities just present themselves. And I really do believe that a lot of the process of becoming financially independent, you're developing this skill set, you're developing these personality traits, you're constantly learning and growing. And at the same time, you're developing this frugality where you don't need a lot. And so you kind of just, you're just in this position where there's so many opportunities. And even if they're not financially lucrative, you can pursue them. And sometimes because you are pursuing them with this passion and with this different mindset, they turn financially lucrative, even though you didn't want them to, you just, you never know where stuff's going to take you. And and so not to give you a cop-out answer, but yeah, I have no <laughs> idea where we're going next. Once this book's out, uh, I kind of figure it out as we go. And, and it's kind of a exciting and fun place to be. It can be a little scary sometimes, but more fun than scary. Sweet, man. So that's the next chapter. I just want to get a quick little piece of advice for the next, next chapter. What things are you doing to kind of prepare your daughter for the real world and understand finances, entrepreneurship, frugality, any of that stuff? I'd love if you could just kind of share a tip or two for the parents listening. So my daughter is six. So we're not being, I don't think over the top, like we don't pound this into her, but I think really like from my own experience and, and again, even from a negative aspect, from my wife's experience, I really kind of just buy into that whole idea that that more stuff is caught than taught. So even though now we're, you know, quote unquote, financially independent, we still have a pretty frugal lifestyle. One of my next big projects that I'm actually planning to start working on this week, since we moved here, we really don't drive very much. And we have a one car garage, and it's kind of more of a, a hassle to have two cars than one. So we can certainly afford to keep two cars, but we're actually going to look to cut down to one car. Just our general lifestyle, like she sees us, we we'll probably give more money away at Christmas time, like buying presents for kids that don't have anything than she gets. And and she understands that it's pretty cool. Like she gets it and she actually enjoys my, my wife will take her shopping with her where we're buying stuff for other kids. And she really doesn't ask for stuff. Like she, I think she realizes that she's pretty fortunate. And, and I think just seeing what we do is uh, more important at this stage. And probably as she gets older, we'll start maybe like setting up, like if she starts working, maybe setting up a Roth IRA for her or something. Or at this point, uh, it's really just more, trying to set a good example versus pounding stuff into her that she's going to want to probably reject anyway. And have you had thoughts on whether you would nudge her towards traditional education, like a traditional college experience or trying to foster that entrepreneurial spirit more, or is it just kind of a, let's wait and see what her interests are and 
give her the best advice we can. Definitely say it's more of a, a wait and see. We have talked about homeschooling. I don't like kind of the path that everybody has to go to college. And so if she starts struggling, I could definitely see us going that route. And also just for selfish reasons, like you can quote unquote retire, but when you have a six-year-old, you're kind of bound to the school schedule and then you're bound to travel when everybody else is off. And so for selfish reasons, we've also talked about doing the homeschooling thing. But like Ogden, one of the things that drew us here, it doesn't have a reputation of having the best public schools, but there's just a lot of options. There's a, there's a really booming um, charter school scene here. So she goes to a charter school now. And there's a bunch of different charter schools that are focused on different topics and kids switch all the time. So we're also kind of considering that. And, and if she starts to not like the school that she's in, maybe trying a different one. And we're very open to that. But uh, one of the things we did talk about in the book and that Cody guy was in that chapter, but we talked a lot about <laughs> college and I can't really say anything too negative. Cause I mean, that was a huge part of my wife and my story. Our financial success was those college degrees. But again, like she came out with little less than $20,000 debt. I came out with none. And then we both got advanced degrees totally free. And so if you can find a way to get the education, if you need it and uh, find a way to pay for it, I think there's a lot of value in that. You know, if you want to pursue something that costs a lot of money, but it doesn't have a financial reward, I mean, you can use a library and the internet and learn just about anything. So I will definitely instill that in there, her that, you know, I certainly wouldn't have her going into debt to go get a degree that's not going to pay off. But if we can get through college wisely and without debt or with very little debt, and it's going to be lucrative, I mean, I'm not against college either. It's just, you got to, you got to approach the decision intelligently, I think. Definitely. All right. So in the interest of time, before we get into the last few questions here, is there anything that we have not covered, whether it's a topic or just a piece of advice or a one word quote you want to say before we kind of hop into the last few questions here, Chris? No, I mean, I think we hit the hit my story and, and covered the book pretty well. So I'm ready to ready to roll with the questions. Chris this has been a really interesting episode. And obviously, we tried to cover as much of your story and kind of what you're looking forward to as much as we could. But if people want to keep in contact with you and maybe get even more of your story, where's the best place for them to reach you? Yeah, so I write regularly at caniretireyet.com. I'm not super active on social media. So if you just go right to the blog and we have a contact form on there and I'm pretty good with responding to emails. So people can feel free to reach out to me there and you can find my writing there. And when does this awesome Choose 5 book come out and where can people learn about it? The book is out on October 1st and you can find it at choosefi.com slash book. And you can buy the book basically anywhere you buy books. It's available for pre-sale right now on Amazon. And I believe it's on pre-sale already like at Barnes and Noble and, and everywhere else you'd buy books. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely link that up in the show notes. One thing we ask all of our guests, if you had one piece of advice for someone on their path to financial independence, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I think the the answer there is just to get started. We talked about like how we how I started and before the five blogs were out there and, and we just started because it kind of I think intuitively everybody knows that you shouldn't be in debt, you should save. And so even if you don't really know what you're saving for or or how to get going, if you just start taking steps and keep learning, and even like we talked about when I quit my job, I would have not have predicted that I'm writing for a blog, sending out blog posts to 800 people. Now I send out to like, I think it's 17,000 people on our on our mailing list. I'm writing this book with the Choose FI guys who are just on this trajectory upward and even as I quit my job a couple of months or I guess a little over a year ago now, I couldn't have predicted I'd be doing either of those projects. But as you just keep growing and learning and pursuing, trying to better yourself, you really never know where things are going to take you. So I guess my my advice would just be get started and do something because while you don't know where you're going, if you get started, you can pretty much guarantee if you don't get started, you're going to stay right where you're at. So, Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point where 
you know, a lot of times I think in this space, when you get interested in this idea, you get hit with some negativity of, well, what do you do when this happens? What do you do when that happens? The kind of what if scenario, but it's like, you know what, no matter what happens negatively, me saving money isn't going to hurt that. So uh, I totally get what you mean. Yeah. And with growing and learning and all that stuff, I mean, there's, what's the downside with any of it? There's, there's yeah. really none. So <laughs> speaking of learning, so we're going to have the uh, audience try to learn something new here because now we have what is the wild card question as it is aptly named, because it is a question that I don't know. Cody doesn't know. So there's no way our good guest here knows what it is. Are you ready, Chris? <laughs> I am ready. So I have a history of asking these questions and asking something so off the wall that it just kind of leaves people blank. So I'm going to try to throw you a little more of a softball today. If you could just bomb down any mountain in the world, what mountain would it be? Ooh, that is not a softball. That's a tough one. (laughs) I'm looking out my window. We have like, so at my home resort, we're at uh, Snow Basin. We have like the men's and women's downhill from the uh, Salt Lake Olympics. And I do bomb down those on a regular basis. I always wanted to, like I climbed in the winter, Mount Washington. I know you guys are up in New England and I never went up and and skied Tuckerman's Ravine. So I guess at some point in my life, I'm going to have to hike up there and and bomb down that, I guess. So I'll go with that one. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I was expecting some crazy like Mount Everest or something. I don't even know if you can ski on there, but maybe you could just powder it and see what happens. (laughs) I'm sure somebody can. I can't. So. Uh, a little helpful plug out there for the military listeners. If you love skiing, you can get the Epic Pass, which is normally like eight, $900, covers mountains all over the country, into Canada, I think maybe even Japan, Australia, like just all over the place. You can get it for like 120 bucks, and they just added a whole slew more locations, including a bunch of places out on the out in the Northeast, which used to be pretty bare on the Epic Pass. So now you can hit up, you know, all the big resorts in Utah, Colorado, out here in the Northeast, Whistler, you name it, it's on there. It's like 120 bucks for active duty military. So if you're a ski fan, that's a huge value. Yeah, and you could I think a lot of people think skiing is this really expensive hobby and you can make anything expensive, but you can you can do it pretty well on the cheap too and that's a pretty awesome hack there, especially for the military people that can get it at that price. So yeah, my skis, boots, bindings, everything was 50 bucks at a used sale on base. <laughs> Some like old rental gear. And I still ski, you know, black diamonds today on those old faithful 50 buck uh, equipment. So you can do it. Yes, you can. All right. Well, it's the middle of summer. So enough of the ski talk. Chris, it has been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Honestly, congratulations on quitting your job, starting the book, all these crazy ventures that have come to you. Wish you the best of success. It sounds like you're doing great stuff with your family. And just thanks again for sharing your time with us today. Thanks for having me, and and I hope listeners will check out the book and uh, come check me out at the blog, and I'd love to connect with people. All right, Cody, really love that episode. It's a little different than some of the, you know, we've had a lot of real estate heavy episodes. This one was a little more traditional. What'd you think about it? Yeah, I just really liked it. I think his story is super relatable and one that a lot of people can resonate with. He had a pretty average salary. He seemed like he grew up in a pretty average family. He said he was on the lower income side of things and he did have that frugality background, but he kind of just seems like an everyday guy. And then he discovers Fi. He had a financial advisor who was kind of screwing him over for a bunch of years, but his wife and him ended up retiring at, I think it was like 41 and 38 or she's still working a little bit, but just so inspiring for the average person to kind of listen to this. And I'm not trying to call Chris average in any way, shape or form, but this is a replicable journey. No, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, that kind of ordinary type journey, even though it's not necessarily ordinary is relatable and relatable is inspiring. So this is something that people don't, they don't have to listen to it and think, Oh man, that's so far beyond what I could do. Or man, that takes so much skill. You know, it's really just a mindset change and a willpower thing. There's no 
outside circumstances that you need. There's no random skill set or, you know, there's no lucky breaks there. It's just kind of follow the path, do your time, and you'll come out the other side looking really well. And it's not like Chris did everything right either. He said, I think he started investing in 2005 with his financial advisor. And it wasn't until like 2012 or 2013 where he fired that financial advisor when he found out he was paying like crazy, crazy load fees and all these expense ratios and all this stuff. And he didn't know anything about Vanguard index funds. Imagine he did though back then, back in say 2002, (laughs) he'd be retired probably five years earlier. So by no means did he do everything right, but he was still able to retire at such a young age compared to general retirement at 65. Another thing I really enjoyed about this episode is, you know, he kind of brought it up how the mad scientist kind of highlighted it for him. But this whole idea of, you know, you could be retired early and still be depressed. Like it's not this like magic pill, this magic fix all and how it's it's more complicated than that. And you got to start building that life that makes you happy well before you're looking at being retired. And if it means you retire a little later, but you've built a life that makes you really happy, that's that's the right move. You know, it's not all about the finish line, bringing it as close as humanly possible to today's date. Like it's, it is a journey. One of the things that he said that I think he didn't even realize he was saying, he said him and his wife are not frugal. Like he wouldn't describe them as frugal if he had to give them a money adjective. But on the same coin, he paid off his mortgage in seven years. He doesn't have a car payment. Like he's doing all the stuff on the right end of the stick. Kind of like what we talked about, Justin, in our episode two weeks ago when we kind of shared our own expenses, but he's more than willing to pay for his family to be happy or to go on really cool experiences or to travel the world. But it's just those like boring expenses. (laughs) Forgive me, anyone who loves their house or their car or any other boring expense, but he's kind of keeping those as low as possible so he can keep the fun expenses as high as he wants in his early retirement. No, I mean, like you said, he mentions that he doesn't consider himself a, a frugal person. In the grand scheme of things, he's obviously way more frugal than the standard American, but once you kind of get into this space and you reprioritize what is actually important, what really brings happiness, you'll start to see that like you can't even imagine what it's like to spend, you know, 70% of your income. Like only saving 30% seems crazy to you. You don't know what you would spend the money on because you realize all those things like wouldn't bring you happiness. So why would you? Like I really think if you stick with this and you start digging through your finances and you pick out those things that matter to you, you'll get to a point to where it's really not even difficult to save 50%. Now, obviously, I understand like I'm in a fortunate position. I don't have kids. I have a good income. But, you know, I've seen both sides of the coin. And I really believe that there's a lot of people out there who can save 50% or more of their income and it not even feel difficult. Not to say everyone can, but there are a lot of people out there who could who aren't. And Justin, another thing that... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And one thing I really liked about Chris's story is he's just such an outdoor active guy. And I definitely resonate with that. I know, Justin, you do a ton of stuff outdoors as well. And for you listeners, for people who've been kind of holding back doing that one outside fun thing, whether it's your time constraint, whether it costs a little bit of money, go do that outside thing that you'd be wanting to do. It's summer. I know we do have some listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. Shout out to you people in the winter, but hopefully it's warm where you are. But if it's summer, go out and do something, whether it's the time, whether it's the money, just get out there and have some fun because like Chris said, life is just all about those experiences. It's about having fun. It's not about pinching every penny. It's also not about living paycheck to paycheck. So find that middle ground and go have some fun. Yeah, Cody, I think that's a great call to action. And as you said, huge outdoor fan. I mean, it's beyond just like the fun of it. Like just stepping away from the computer can kind of help you see, again, what's important to you. And you, who knows, 
given that kind of moment of clarity being outside, it might also give you some, some ideas. Maybe that's your new side hustle idea comes there, but just go out there, enjoy it. Like you said, it's obvious that the outdoors, like you said, were also a big part of Chris's life. Chris has a really interesting backstory and with the book coming out, he's got a lot going on. So if you enjoyed this episode as much as we did, you can get all the details and go read along with the show notes over at thefyshow.com slash Chris. And as always, we would love for you to come out and be a part of the greatest, most inclusive financial community on the internet, our Facebook group page over at thefyshow.com slash community. And as always, please give us those five-star reviews and just share with us what you would like to hear because that feedback and those reviews help us get on great guests and keep bringing you the best content we can. So thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.